Before we begin this morning, uh, it's brought to my attention about a dear sister in the state of Florida that we, Karen and I love very, very deeply. Her name is B. Cunningham. She recently turned 90, and they had a birthday party for her, and uh, anyway, she ended up getting COVID and been in a hospital intensive care. She has improved to the point that she's hoping to possibly get out to death tomorrow. Anyway, please be in prayer for Sister B. Cunningham. She is one of the most dedicated disciples of the Lord I've ever known in my life. And I've been a big, her and Brother Julian Cunningham were just such great helps to Karen and I uh, for many, many years. This morning, I'd like for us to take a look at uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. I want to take a look at a question that the Lord Jesus Christ asked his disciples. He says, will ye also go away? Now last Sunday we looked at a question that the scoffers asked in 2 Peter chapter 3 when they said, where is the promise of his coming? That question from the mouth of the scoffers didn't stop 2,000 years ago. There's been scoffers in every century, in every generation. And they're continuing to say, where is the promise of his coming? But here's a question that came from the lips of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ to his 12 disciples or apostles that he had personally chosen from the multitude of disciples in that day. And he asked them this question. And it's a question I think that's still being asked today. It's being asked in every century and every generation. Will you also go away? That indicates somebody had gone away. Well, I want to take a look at... Uh, picture of John chapter 6, because I think it's one of the most important chapters in the Gospel of John for different reasons. It's the longest chapter in the Gospel of John. It's got 71 verses. And it opens up in John 6, 1 and 2, telling us that great, a great multitude followed the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, because of the miracles. So the chapter opens up with a great multitude of people following Jesus it ends with most of that multitude leaving Jesus and only a few walking after him. So what happened between John chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 and the end of the gospel of John? Why did they leave? So we go back to John chapter 6 in the opening verses and we find where they were following Christ because of the miracles. It says in Christ went up into a mountain and with his disciples apart from the multitude, but then he saw the great multitudes coming. And if you read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and this is the only miracle that Christ performed that's found in all four Gospels. So I know it has to be very significant for us to take a look at. If all four Gospel writers wrote about this miracle, and it's the only one that Jesus performed, now let me say this too, the writings of the Apostle John are selective writings. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called synoptic Gospels. That's because of their similarity. It's because they all see a lot of events through, uh, through their own eyes and wrote very similar things. But John's Gospel stands apart from that. John's Gospel is more about the deity of Christ. It's more about establishing the truth of his deity and his eternal sonship. The last two verses of John chapter 20 explains this. The Apostle John said, And truly, Jesus did 
many more signs truly in the presence of the disciples than those that's written in this book. And the book I believe he's talking about is the Gospel of John. John did not write about all the things that Jesus did. The word sign simply means a miracle with a message to it. That's the difference between some miracles. That's why he calls it a sign here and not a miracle. A sign is a miracle. But it's a miracle with a message involved in it, a message attached to it. So he said, for Jesus did many more signs truly in the presence of his disciples than those which are written in this book. But these are written that ye may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So we see where God, by divine inspiration, had John pinned down what he pinned down in these 21 chapters of John. And he didn't have him pinned down all the things that Jesus did. You know, at the end of the book of John, it says all the signs that Jesus did, all the miracles that he did had been recorded, that even the world would not be able to contain the books that could have been written therein. That's a, that's a big, that's a mouthful, isn't it? That's a tremendous statement. And so we go back to the first part of John chapter 6, and we find where Christ is going to perform a miracle that all four gospel writers are going to write about. But to begin with, we're going to find where four solutions were brought up, you might say, how to take care of this vast multitude of people. Now, when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke to go along with John, which is what you need to do, you'll find it was toward even time. That is, it was getting dark. And the disciples come up with the first solution. And the disciples said, send them away that they might go into the villages where they might buy victuals for themselves. But the Lord had compassion upon them. And the Lord knew they were tired and they were weary and they would faint by the way. So the disciples' idea of solving this problem was just to send them away. Now that's the attitude a lot of people have about solving problems. They think the best thing to do to solve this problem is to ignore it or to just send it away and have to take care of itself. But that's not true. It would not have helped one bit to send the multitude away. Jesus knew once again they were weak, they were weary, and they would faint by the wayside, and that was not the solution to this problem here. Now, reading these four Gospels, we find out that the amount of people was 5,000 men, plus women and plus children. Now, I think, conservatively speaking, you could figure there's probably at least 10,000 people here. Let's just say there was one woman for, for every two men from the standpoint of counting. That would be 7,500. And let's suppose there was one child for every two. That's another 2,500. So I think in a conservative way, you could figure at least 10,000 people here on this occasion. Now, you could take 10,000 people and put them in Nissan Stadium and kind of scatter them out. It wouldn't, like, wouldn't look like very many people. I'm not exactly sure what the capacity is in Nissan Stadium. Let's say it's uh, 70, 75,000 people. Put 10,000 in there and scatter them around, and it might not look like very many. But let's take his hillside right here. You don't necessarily have to look. But anyway, <laughs> let's put 10,000 people on this six acres of land right here. If you did that and looked out, I doubt you'd see a blade of grass. I imagine it would occupy every inch of property that we have right here. And you would say, my goodness, what a great multitude of people. You know, it's always been interesting to me. 
in a congregation like we have here this morning, we always stand on the last verse of a song, right? Give everybody a chance to stretch their legs after being here for 30 minutes. Well, from up here, it looks like we almost double our congregation when you stand up. It does. Uh, at least 25, 50%, <laughs> I'll say that, uh, increase when you stand up. I don't know what it is, but that's just the way it is. But we have around t probably 10,000 people. And the disciple solution is to send them away. Now, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, you remember the woman we spoke several weeks ago about a woman coming to Christ because she had a daughter that was very sick. She was, uh, uh, had an unclean spirit and was vexed with the devil. You know what the disciples wanted Christ to do? He wanted them, him to send her away. Uh, it's kind of interesting, the attitude of the disciples in these two situations. So their solution was just to send them away. But the Lord's not going to do that. So then the Lord asked a question. And it was a test question, I believe, here in John chapter 6. He asked the disciples, what did they have? And we're going to find where Andrew, uh, Philip speaks up. He says, well, if we had 200 penny worth of bread. Now, 200 penny worth of bread is about 200 days wages. About seven months wages. He said it would not be enough for everyone to take. They would just get a little and not, would not be taken care of. So, you know, a lot of people think money takes care of everything, right? They think money is the solution to all problems. Our government seems to think that. You know, okay, all we got to do is print more money. <laughs> I can't print more money. Uh, you know, when I get a little low, my solution is not to print more money. But the government's uh, solution is print more money and give more money away. You know. Uh, just give, give money away and that'll take care of the problem. My, I just ask you this question and we'll move on from this. Do you think our problems are less or more right now by printing more money and giving more money away? See, money is not the answer to many problems in life. A lot of people think it is. Well, I had enough money to take care of all my problems. Though if you had too much money, you just increased your problems. So that's not going to work. And then we find Andrew. And apparently Andrew has spotted this little lad and this little lad has got some food with him. He's got five barley loaves, and he's got two small fishes. The Bible emphasizes these two fish are small fish. Now, there are times when the Bible tells us that they're fish or large fish, like in John 21, when the disciples called a great multitude of fish. It says there's a multitude of great fish, that is, good-sized fish, and there was 153 of them. But here we got two small fishes and five barley loaves. Now, I was thinking about this. If that little lad, he'd have to have a big appetite to eat five barley loaves of bread. Now, two fishes, I didn't see him handling that. But five barley loaves of bread, you know what I think? I think his mother was telling him and gave him enough food to share with somebody. I'm giving you enough food for you to eat, and you just share it with somebody else. I remember growing up and we'd have lunch at church. We didn't have it as frequently as we have it now back in that day, but when we did, my mother, uh, she would cook enough for just no telling how many. And uh, we'd take the food out to the car and just made several trips, taking pots and pans and, uh, you know, and, and things to hold the food in. You know what my mother was doing? My mother was sending enough food to take care of our family and several other families at the same time. And there was always an abundance of food when we, had, uh, when we ate at church. 
Now, in contrast, this present day, and this is no criticism, I'm just showing the contrast and the difference. You know, when people bring things to church when we have lunch, uh, there are still a few that, that carry a lot. I mean, I bring a tray full of food that Karen fixes when we have lunch, and it's about all I can handle. But, you know, some people bring one dish. My, my thinking on this is we ought to always think about somebody else. We ought to always think about somebody who may not have been able to bring something. We bring enough for ourselves, we bring enough for our neighbor, we bring enough for our other brother and other sister. That's exactly, I believe here, that, that little boy couldn't eat five barley loaves of bread. I'm sure about that. But he's got five barley loaves and two small fishes. But then he asked the question. He says, but what are they among so many? Yeah, we got some food, we got some barley loaves, we got two small fishes, but <laughs> what good's that going to do with around 10,000 people out here? Well, that wasn't the answer. Now, we found three possible solutions, and none of them are going to work. Similar way, solution one, no, bad idea. Solution number two, all right, we got 200 penny worth of bread. That's enough for us seven months' wages, but that's nearly not enough to feed this great multitude of people where everybody could even take just a little bit. So that's not going to work. Now we got a lamb with five barley loaves and two small fishes, but that's not going to work either. What is that among so many people? They were taking a look at their resources, but they were overlooking the greatest resource they had, and that was the Lord. So the Lord has a solution, as he always does. There's never been a time that Christ didn't have the right solution, the right answer, the right solution to a problem. So he has the right solution. He tells his disciples... He says, make them all sit down upon the grass. Now, we are fine as we read these four Gospels that they were in a wilderness, but yet there was some grass for them to sit down on. And he told them to sit down in an orderly manner, orderly way, by hundreds and fifties. I read over the book of Exodus chapter 13 where Israel is about to come across the Red Sea. And it says, when they come across the Red Sea, they came across harnessed. And the word harnessed there means in groups of five. They didn't just rush across. You might have thought that. You know, the Red Sea opens up. Uh, Pharaoh's army is right there next to them, just about ready to take, overtake them one thing or another. You might have thought there was a panic. You might have thought there would be a mad rush to get across to the other side. But not so. They went across very orderly in a very calm manner, in a calm way, to the other side. That's what the presence of the Lord does. That's what the presence of the Lord does in any situation. It gives you a peace and a calmness, when otherwise you wouldn't have it. In the book of 1 Corinthians 14, 40, Paul says, Do all things decently and in order. Our God's an orderly God. When God created the heaven and the earth, He created an orderly manner. The sun, the moon, and the stars are all right where they're supposed to be. He put them in the very place they're supposed to be. They're all in the right location up there. God put them right where they needed to be, they were supposed to be, because he's a God of order. When the Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected from the tomb and they looked in, what did they find? They found the napkin that went around his head at one end and the grave clothes wrapped neat and orderly at the other end. He didn't just leave it like some people do when they get out of bed and leave it that way all day long. He was very orderly. They looked in and they saw the Lord took time before he came out and take the headpiece off, fold it, put it right over here, and take the other and put it right over here. My mother and daddy taught me a lot of things. They taught me to always make my bed. I always make my bed. 
Um, if Karen gets up first, I have to make the bed. <laughs> Sometimes we make it together. Uh, and if I get out first, then I still make the bed. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, you know, and stay, I know I mentioned it before, but it's, it's pretty interesting to me. Uh, when I stay somewhere, and the Lord's blessed me to stay in over 150 homes in my lifetime in my ministry. I count them all up. In various states, about 150 houses, homes I've been blessed to stay in, where they have opened up their home, rolled out the red carpet, was given the hospitality, showed me where the key was, even to the automobile if I needed to go somewhere where they were going during the daytime. And they gave me the nicest bed they have to lay down on and the nicest pillow. But the thing about it is they have about 10 or 12 pillows on the bed now. <laughs> How am I ever going to remember where to put all them pillows back? Well, I take my iPhone out and take a picture of it. And then when I start putting them back, I hold the phone up and I put them all back in place. That's, that's one good thing to have an iPhone for. <laughs> and I'm serious, I do that. I, when I grew up, I had one pillow here and one pillow there, two pillows. Now, eight, ten, twelve pillows. Anyway, that's the way it is. So, Paul said, do all things decently and in order. Now, that's a general statement, but it's a strong statement. How are we going to do that? How are we going to do all things decently in order? We have to know what order is, and the Word of God teaches us what order is. It teaches us the order of worship. The Word of God teaches us that we're to assemble ourselves together. That's part of the order. It teaches us that we're to sing hymns of praise and adoration to God, a cappella. Uh, that's order. He teaches us that we ought to have prayer in the assembly of the saints. That's order. He teaches us the proclamation of the gospel, the importance of it, and we're to preach the Word of God and hear the Word of God and receive the Word of God and apply the Word of God. That's doing all things decently in order according to the pattern, according to God's Word. Do all things that way. Christ says, set them all, set, have them all set down in hundreds and fifties. They all set down in an orderly manner, an orderly way. There was no table, there were no chairs. They sat right down on the ground. You come out dinner on the grounds, they're going to have dinner on the grounds. Then the Lord takes the five loaves and two fishes. It says, He looked up to heaven and He gave thanks. This is the Savior, the Son of God. What did he do? He looked up into heaven, pointing where our blessings come from, where our thanks ought to be directed to. He looked up into heaven. We're told he gave thanks twice. He looked up into heaven and he gave thanks for that five loaves and two fishes. And then after he gave thanks, he took and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he told them to pass it out. And the disciples passed it out. There's a lot in this I'm not going to get to this morning because I want to move on to get to my final question or the question here at the end of this chapter. But here's what the multitudes were enjoying. The multitudes were being blessed. They were hungry. They were faint. They were weary. But God didn't send them away. God just took and multiplied the bread, multiplied the fishes to where there was enough to feed 10,000 people. And when it was all over and said and done, he says, pick up the fragments, then nothing be lost. And they gathered up 12 basketfuls. What a mighty, mighty miracle this was. The Lord took matters in his own hands. He blessed it. He gave thanks. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to the disciples. The disciples passed it out. It's, it's interesting to me just to kind of think what would be going between my ears if I was there on that occasion. What would be going through my mind 
When the Lord says, uh, take these five barley loaves and these two fishes, and I want you to start distributing, I want you to start passing it out, what would have went through my mind? What, what good is that going to do? It's not going to take no time at all. I don't know how long it did take, but they were there a while, I can assure you that. And they never ran out. They never come up short. When it's all said and done, there was an abundance of it. There was a, 12 baskets. There were 12 disciples. Each disciple's got a basket, a reminder of what they'd seen and witnessed that day. What a wonderful, wonderful blessing this was. You know, what was the reaction of the people? The reaction of the people were they wanted to come and by force make Jesus a king. How could they make Jesus something he already was? He was already a king. Remember what the wise men said when they came? And the star directed them to where the young child was? They said, where is he that's born king of the Jews? He was a king when he was born because he was a king before he was born. There's never been a time when he was not king. But in a manifest manner, in a manifest way, they wanted to come and by force take him to be a king. Philippians 2, 5 and 6 tells us this. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought not robbing equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Jesus did not come into this world here to be applauded. He did not come in this world here to be lifted up in pride. Obviously, he had no pride to begin with. He was sinless. The Lord Jesus Christ, you know what he did? He says he departed and went into a mountain alone. Now, average person would have kind of liked wanting to be a king, don't you think? They probably would have re, uh, received that. They probably would have been happy. Oh, you want to make me a king? Well, okay, go ahead. Make me a king, but not Jesus. That's the kind of mind we ought to have, a mind of humility when we come like we have this morning to assemble together and gather together, we have the opportunity to come clothed with humility. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Have you ever thought maybe well, you, you didn't receive much out of the worship service but like everybody else did? Maybe you came with a proud look. Maybe you came with a proud heart. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you want to be fed, if you want to be strengthened, if you want to be comforted, if you want to rejoice in your heart and in the things of God, you better put on the, the clothing of humility. That's the only way you can walk with the Lord. That's what we find in the Old Testament prophet telling us in the book of Amos, uh, excuse me, in the book of Micah. What doth the Lord require thee but to love mercy and to do justly and to walk humbly with thy God? If you walk with God, you must do it in humility or you will not walk with him. We have the opportunity this morning to gather in this manner, in this way. So the question is, have I put on humility this morning? Have I come clothed with humility? They wanted to make him a king, but he would not allow it. He was already a king to begin with, but he was not going to allow them to make any fanfare over him. He went to a mountain apart to, uh, away from them. And then he says he constrained his disciples to get into a ship and go to the other side ahead of him. Jesus did three things. He told his, his disciples, he constrained them. Straightway he constrained them, which he means uh, it was strong persuasion. The word constrained means with strong persuasion. He strongly persuaded them to get into a ship and go ahead of him to the other side. Notice, to the other side. That was the, the objective, get to the other side, to the city of Capernaum. Now, in the book of Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, we can do all things through Christ which strengthens us, right? 
The expression all things is found over 200 times in the Bible. It always means all things under consideration, all things in the context. I don't know how many people take the expression all things and just lift it right out, make it a pretext and make it say whatever they want it to say. You better study the context see what all things is all about. We can do all things through Christ with strength to us. The Lord told them to get in that ship and go over to the other side ahead of him. Then they'd be able to do that. But after they rode about uh, 2,000 furlongs, I believe it is, which, which is about three miles into the sea, the wind started blowing. And a great storm came up. There's a lot of practical lessons in all of this. That's another reason John chapter 6 is so important is because of the practical lessons involved in all of this. They're about three miles out and a storm comes up. Now, there are some people that would promote the idea that if you're walking in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, you won't know anything about trials. Tribulations will not come your way. You'll have no problems to speak of if you're walking in harmony with the Lord. Well, these disciples are doing exactly what the Lord told them to do. He told them to get into the ship, go to the other side ahead of him. That's exactly what they've done. And they ran into, I believe, probably the strongest storm they'd ever experienced in their life on the Sea of Galilee. It is true. You could have a Jonah experience. Jonah was in the midst of a great storm because of his disobedience. But these disciples here in the midst of a storm, not because of disobedience, they're in the midst of a storm in their obedience. The Lord is not with them like he was earlier in a, another storm when they were in the ship. Remember, he was in the bomb of the ship and was asleep. That's a separate storm. This time, he sends them that way. Then the ship, the Lord sends a multitude away. And then the Lord goes into a mountain alone to pray. That's the three things that the Lord did. The storm is raging. And the Bible says it was dark and the Lord was not yet with them. Now, when I think about that expression, it was dark and the Lord was not yet with them. That's, that's not something I would want to uh, kind of uh, desire, would you? You're in the dark season, whatever it might be, and the Lord is not with you. But the Lord knew everything going on. He was in a mountain. They couldn't see him and he could see them. He was out of their sight, but they were not out of his sight. And so the Bible says in the fourth watch of the night, the Lord Jesus Christ came down from that mountain and started walking on that water to go to his disciples. Remember, they're three miles out. And they see the Lord coming. When they first see him, the Bible says they thought it was a spirit. And they became greatly frightened. But then one of them told them, he says, it's, it's the Lord. And then the Lord identified himself by saying, be of good cheer, it is I. You remember when the Lord told his disciples one of them should betray him, what they all said? They all turned the finger at their own self and they said, is it I? The same three words, but rearranged. There's a lot of difference in is it I and it is I. I need to always say, is it I? If there's a problem, is it I? If there's a problem between a husband and a wife, if the husband would point his finger right at his own self and say, is it I? It'll solve a lot of problems. If the wife would take her finger and point at herself and say, is it I? It'll solve a lot of problems. If a church member would take their finger and point it at their own self and say, is it I? It'd take care of a lot of problems. The number one enemy that you've got today is not me, it's you. The number one enemy I got today is not you, it's me. I am public enemy number one. When I look in the mirror, I see all the trouble I need to see. 
When I look in the mirror, I see all the problems I need to see. The problem is me. The trouble is me. I need to get me worked out. Have you ever seen an army of men marching? And it's obvious one person's not in step. You know what the person that's not in step is thinking? Boy, everybody else is out of step. (laughs) That's what he's thinking. Everybody else is out of step. No, they're not out of step. You're out of step. But the person that's out of step, he thinks everybody else is out of step. But the Lord didn't say, is it I? The Lord said, it is I. And I I want you to know who the I is. (laughs) Who is this I? See, the Gospel of John is an important book, too, because the Lord in the Gospel of John makes seven strong statements about being the I Am. Remember, that's what the Lord told Moses to tell the children of Israel. He said, when I go down there, who shall I say has sent me? He says, you tell them that I am, that I am has sent you. That's all in capitals. I am, I am has sent you. In the Gospel of John, seven times the Lord Jesus Christ, to prove his deity, declares that he's an I am. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection, etc. The first time he says something like this is in John chapter 6, that we'll say something about Lord willing in just a moment, when he says, I am the bread of life. But also, there's seven more times in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I am he. I am he, pointing to himself, who he was. This other points to his deity. I am he. Remember in uh, John 8, 58, when he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad in it. He said, but before Abraham was, I am. That's separate from the other sevens I've just been talking to you about. There's actually those seven and then the seven where he just simply says, I am or or I am he. So the Lord is walking to them and he says he's coming in the fourth watch of the night. That'd be between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. That'd be usually the darkest part of the night. There's an old saying, you know, the darkest time is just before the dawn. He's coming in the fourth watch of the night. They've been out there a long time. They've been in grave danger. They see him walking on the water and the Lord says, be of good cheer, it is I. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes you can tell somebody, be of good cheer, and you've got no real reason to tell them that. You've got nothing to back it up. I mean, that sounds nice, be of good cheer, but why should I be of good cheer? Uh, give me a reason I should be of good cheer. The Lord never tells you to be of good cheer without giving you a reason. You know what the reason is here? Be of good cheer, it is I. That's why you can be of good cheer, if you understand who the I is, the capital I here. You can be of good cheer. I'm the great physician. I'm the, I'm the Savior. I'm the Redeemer. I'm the omnipotent Lord of glory. I'm Lord of Lord. I'm King of kings. Uh, it is I is walking on the water. There's numerous miracles associated with this event that we're talking about. Jesus walking the water is one of them. Then Peter calls out and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come to thee on the water. I don't know how many times I've quoted that without using that last, those last couple words, on the water. I just noticed that. He said, Lord, bid me come. That's why I've always said, he said to the Lord, Lord, bid me come unto thee. But he said more than that. He said, Lord, bid me to come unto thee on the water. 
That means he's got to have a miracle of Christ to do that, doesn't it? I, I guarantee you Peter never walked on water in his life. So he said, Lord, if it be thee, bid me come to thee on the water. And the Lord said, come. Now I go back to Philippians chapter 4. We do all things through Christ Jesus which strengtheneth us. Peter is able to do what the Lord tells him to do. He says, come, yes, to come to me. You've got to walk on water. And Peter walks on the water. And then the Bible says Peter looked at the wind. <laughs> How far did he walk before he saw the wind? I don't know. When he saw the wind, he started to sink. And he cried out and said, Lord, save me. A three-word powerful prayer. Lord, save me. And the Bible says Jesus reached his hand and caught him. Now, get the picture here. Jesus is walking on the water. Peter's close enough to him. He starts to sink, cries, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches out with his hand and catches him. And then he says, oh, thou of little faith. <laughs> and then the next thing we see, they're both in the ship. Another miracle. And then those disciples came and they fell down and worshipped him and said, truly thou art the Son of God. Now, this is what these disciples have experienced. After this takes place, it says, the next day, those people that uh, were over there that got fed, they came down the Sea of Galilee and they don't see the Lord. They saw they know there was one ship there. Disciples got in the ship. The Lord was not in it. They don't see the Lord. Where is the Lord? So they got in a bunch of other ships and they went to the other side and they found the Lord on the other side. And they asked the Lord, how did you get here? <laughs> he didn't walk around the Sea of Galilee. How did you get here? You know what the Lord told them? He says, you follow me not because of the miracles. You followed me because of the loaves and the fishes. That's why you followed me. He says, labor not for that meat that perisheth, but labor for that which endureth unto everlasting, which the Lord shall give thee. He says, you're laboring, you got your focus on the wrong thing. You got your focus on fishes and loaves. And this is what gave rise to the sermon that Christ is going to preach concerning being the bread of life. They bring it up even. They said, Lord, show us a sign. That we may believe. It says Moses gave the Israelites manna from on high. The first thing the Lord did was to correct their thinking. The Lord said, Moses didn't give you that manna. God gave it to you. Get your eyes off Moses. Take the focus off Moses. Moses didn't give it to you. God gave it to you. Yeah, Moses was uh, the mediator, you might say, between God and the nation of Israel. But God gave them the manna. And then the Lord Jesus Christ launches into this wonderful discourse about being the bread of life. Now I just want a few highlights out of it. Because they've brought up the subject of the manna. And the manna in the Old Testament was without question a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in many different ways. But Christ is not going to tell them he's equal to the manna. He's going to demonstrate to them that he's far superior to the manna. That manna came from heaven. Jesus came from heaven. God sent the manna and God sent his son. That manna, when it came down to the earth, fell upon the dew. It didn't fall upon the, the soil and become uh, corrupt. It fell upon the dew that was on the earth. And the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world in his humanity, separate from sinners. That manna was small, it was round, and it was white, and it was sweet. The Lord Jesus Christ being round shows his eternality. The fact it was small shows his humility. 
fact, it was white shows his purity and his sinless nature. And in fact, it was sweet. Speaks to our experience, doesn't it? John Newton wrote how, uh, you know, he wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He also wrote how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. Brethren, when the preacher is blessed to preach the gospel to you, when he's blessed to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified unto you, and you see yourself as a poor, needy sinner, but as you have a rich, almighty Savior, is that not a rich and sweet sound to you? Is not the name of Jesus a sweet sound to you? I don't know of a sweeter note my friends and our preacher can sing in his preaching than to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified to the Lord's people and to preach him as being uh, the bread of life that came down from heaven to give life. He tells them two different times, your fathers ate this manna and they're dead. <laughs> that must have been a, a boy, a shock to their system. You brought up the subject of manna? Yeah, they ate this manna and they're dead. It sustained them during their wilderness journey, but they're dead. But whosoever eateth the flesh of the Son of God and drinketh his blood has eternal life and shall never perish because I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. It came down from heaven to give life, not just like manna. That manna was given only to the Jewish people. But the Lord Jesus Christ came as the bread of life for all the elect family of God. He says, for the world. The word world is an important word in John's gospel. It's used 80 times. <laughs> Some people know of one time, John 3, 16. They don't know about the other 79. I'm telling you, it's used 80 times in John's gospel. He mentions the word world. It's an important word. That word world had reference, brother, to God's eternal family out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. In John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman spoke to Jesus and she said, Thou art the Christ, uh, the Son of God. And the people she went back and gave the message, said, Thou art the Christ, Thou art the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. That's the same world of John 3.16. The world of John 3.16 is a world so loved God gave His only begotten Son. The world of John 3.16 has got a Savior. And if the Lord didn't save them, they don't have a Savior. To be a Savior, you have to save now I'm telling you, old Baptists preach that Jesus Christ is a Savior. They don't preach you made salvation possible. What a weak Savior that would be. <laughs> are you wanting to hook on and add to what Jesus did to get you to glory? Or are you willing to, <laughs> are you willing to just take the gospel fact, my friends, that Jesus paid it all? I think I'll take that one. How about you? Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. They didn't like that message. <laughs> they didn't like it. The Lord said in John 6, 37, All the Father giveth me shall come to me. Uh, they didn't like it. He that comes to me, I'll know why I was cast out. They didn't like it. He said, For I came down not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, and this is the Father's will. All he hath given me, I shall lose nothing, but raise up again at the last day. You know what those three verses are teaching you there? It's teaching you unconditional election. All the Father giveth me election shall come to me regeneration. And he that cometh unto me, I will no wise cast out security. For I came down not to do mine own will, but the will of him, the will of the Father which sent me. And this is the Father's will. All he hath given me election. He says, I should lose nothing, eternal security, but raise up again at the last day. In John 6, 44, the Lord said, no man can come to me except the Father which sent him, 
uh, sent me, draw him, and I'll raise him up again at the last day. This is one exception I find recorded in the Bible I'm so thankful for. No man can come unto me. If he had just stopped there, I'd have no hope. You'd have no hope. He didn't make any exceptions for anybody on their own will, their own power. But he said, except the Father which sent me, draw him. And I'll raise him up again at the last day. Four different times the Lord says, I'll raise him up again at the last day. When he got through preaching these messages, the Bible says many turned and said, this is a hard saying. Was that a hard saying to you? What did I just quoted from John 6, 37 through 39 and John 6, 44, was that hard to you? I don't think it was. It sure was not hard for me to say it. <laughs> I'll tell you that. It's not hard for me to believe it. But it was for them. They thought salvation was based on race and not by grace. And this thing about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, they didn't comprehend and understand that. They said, this is a hard saying. And the Lord said, what if you see the Son of Man ascend into heaven? Does this offend you? You think this is hard. What if you see him leave this earth? Does that offend you? Well, he did leave, that, leave this earth in just a short time after this, did he not? After his resurrection and 40 days after that? Then it says, and many of his disciples turned and followed him no more. They started off a great multitude and then they wanted to make him a king. The very ones that wanted to make him a king turn around now and follow him no more. And the Lord looked at his 12 disciples and he said, ask this question. Will ye also go away? The Lord just saw the multitude of his disciples that he just fed. By his grace, he just fed. By his grace, he just delivered. And then when he preached his message, they turned and walked no more with him. Will you also go away? Here's Peter's response. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Now notice, he didn't say, where shall we go? A lot of difference in where and whom, isn't it? Where's a place? Whom's a person? He didn't say, where shall we go? He said, to whom shall we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life. I asked you the question this morning. When you need a great physician, to whom shall you go? You know somebody else to go to apart from Christ? You need a great physician, to whom shall you go? If you need a good friend, to whom shall you go? If you need a helper, to whom shall you go? If you need to find peace, to whom shall you go? If you need to find comfort, whom, to whom shall you go? Shall you go somewhere else other than the one that's called the great comforter? Shall you go to somewhere else where he's called, besides somebody that's called the great physician? Shall you go to somebody else uh, than the one that's called the prince of peace? Shall you go to somebody else that says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. To, will you also go away? Will you also go away? I remember as a young teenage boy attending an associational meeting in Coach, North Carolina. And back then, people went to church. And it was, it was pretty full. And they put up three men, and the second man thought, forgot about a third man to follow. And so he just kept preaching and preaching and preaching. Uh, well, he kept stacking up hay, stacking up hay. I'll uh, just put it that way. <laughs> 
And finally, somebody got up and started out. Somebody else got up. The first thing you know, there's people leaving. And he finally said, out. the third preacher got up and asked this question. He started his message off like this. Will ye also go away? And when they heard that, I remember they stopped. They turned around and came back and filled their seat. And they were glad they did. <laughs> They were glad that did because that man preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, will you also go away? I ask myself the question, will I go away? To whom shall I go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, nobody else. You're the great physician, nobody else. You're the great comforter, nobody else. You're the prince of peace, and nobody else. You're my helper through thick and thin. I can call upon you at 3 in the morning. I don't have to worry about a busy signal. I don't have to worry about a voicemail. I don't have to worry about uh, the line being out of order. I don't have to worry about a storm coming along and destroying the signals, my friends. When I call upon the Lord, the Lord's got an all-seeing eye, an all-hearing ear to hear my case and hear my cause. To whom shall I go? Do you have an answer other than Peter's answer? Do you? Will you also go away? To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Messiah, thou art that Son of God that came down from heaven. When I hear good preaching, it makes me just feel sure that Jesus is the Son of God don't you? And I need that assurance as frequently as I can get it, as often as I can get it. This world's a hard place to live in. But my friends, Jesus can make it tolerable. It's like the old preachers used to say, it's like going on a real bumpy road with all kind of potholes, but thank God you got shock absorbers on the car. It don't remove the potholes, but it gets you across the potholes. <laughs> I mean, it won't remove the potholes, but it gets you across them a whole lot easier than it would be if you didn't have them. Now, Jesus is far more than just a shock absorber, I can tell you that. But I think you get the analogy.